Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to, it's good to be back with you again this morning. It's been a few months, I think, since I've been here last, and uh, it's nice to nice to be back with you this morning. Um, I was sitting at a staff meeting a couple weeks ago, or probably about three weeks ago now, and uh, I remember Dave kind of making eye contact me across the room and asked me if I would uh, uh, be available to to come and and share with you this morning. And I and I said, so, okay, well, what's the? I was trying to find out where you guys were and, and what you were studying and looking at, and, and he directed me to the John two passage, verses thirteen to twenty five, and I read through it and I was like, oh, that one. Yeah, that's a. Thanks, Dave. Sure, I'll take the one where Jesus gets irate. That'll work. Um, but uh, it's uh, definitely one of these interesting, I guess, in many ways, infamous stories of uh, Jesus getting ticked off and making this profound scene in the temple courts. And I'm sure this is one of those events that if you and I, with the understanding and the knowledge of Jesus that we have now, um, if we were in that situation, we were watching this unfold, we would probably be pretty shocked and probably pretty disturbed um, by what we what we see. Because we are so often... We read about and we're told stories about this calm, peaceful, let's just all get along image of Jesus. And um, and we seem to read about that and hear about that so often. And, and obviously the, the demeanor of Jesus was uh, characterized by his peacefulness, his calmness, his, his interaction with people, his love and his compassion. But there's these other snippets that occur as well that are entirely a part of the makeup of who Jesus was. Um, as a liberator, one that was extreme in many cases, that 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 went against status quo uh, religion, uh, that got upset with a, with a variety of different things that the religious elite would uh, would do, and uh, so something deeply profound and inexcusable has happened here for Jesus to get so upset as he does in this situation here in John chapter two, and so I've entitled the message today. I've, I've I didn't I don't have any notes for you to fill in the blanks. I've just got a section of paper in there for you to kind of jot notes as you feel led to do. Uh, it's a nice blank um, sheet of paper there, but I've entitled the, the message, Hypocrite or the Real Deal? Why, go, why going through the motions just doesn't cut it. And I think what we're going to see today is that at the core of Jesus' visible anger in this passage is a righteous hatred of hypocrisy. And I think that's the core of what uh, we will see from Jesus here this morning. You know what hypocrisy is, don't you? Um, I looked it up, as I most often do with words that seem to be pretty familiar uh, to me, um, but wanted to get a, get a legitimate definition for it. So I looked at Webster's Dictionary. Uh, the practice of expressing feelings, beliefs, or virtues that one does not hold or possess. Um, and then another caption there is insincerity. Is how Webster's defines um, hypocrisy. It's the is a couple of an examples. It's the politician that says he or she is concerned with the needs of the poor, but never really does anything or never legislates anything that benefits anyone but him or herself. It's the pastor who says that sexual morality, sexual immorality, is a sinful and destructive behavior, and then quietly, secretively, is involved in an extramarital affair or is addicted to pornography. It's the parent that talks about the importance of honesty and telling the truth and teaches these virtues to their children, yet lies at the office in order to get a promotion. It's you and I, when we say that we're for 
Jesus, that we want to live for Jesus, that he is our life, that he is what consumes us, yet we don't represent him well to the people around us. We don't represent him well to the world. The main point that I'd like to uh, to share with, with each of us this morning and drive home is that Jesus desperately wants our words, our actions, and our heart to be completely focused on him in unity. That what is in our hearts is what comes out of our mouths. And that what comes out of our mouths is lived out in what we do on a day-to-day basis. And that when people see what we do, they should be able to trace it back to our heart. They should be able to see what I see in the actions of that person is indicative of who they are at the core of their being. We can all relate to hypocrisy, can't we? We've had experiences where we've, where we've seen it in other people. We've had experiences where it's happened in ourselves, or we've been um, the proponents of hypocrisy. I remember a friend when I was growing up. Um, one-on-one, he was the nicest guy. Um, he was a great guy to be around. But when we got around our other friends, he was that type of friend that told, turned into a total jerk around other people. Uh, he would pick on me. He'd make fun of me. And then when just the two of us were together again, it'd be like, he's my best friend again. You know, he would treat me like I was the greatest friend in the world. Um, that hypocrisy in my relationship with him has still affected me to this day. Um, not that I hold something against him, but I just don't quite know what I'm getting from him. Am I getting the real deal? You know, is he going to turn around and is he talking bad about me to other people behind my back? I don't know what's really in his heart concerning my relationship with him. But for some reason, it's always easier for us to pick out hypocrisy in other people, isn't it? Um, I'm not a hypocrite, but she is or he is. I don't deal with hypocrisy, but they sure do. Uh, One of my primary uh, love languages is words. If you're familiar with the five different love languages that people express and give love, I probably should be able to name all five of them, but I can't. But, um, but one of them is words, and that's the primary love language that I have. And this means essentially that I give and receive love the best through verbal affirmation or verbal communication. Uh, that's typically how I, how I operate. So it's natural for me to say I love you to my wife and to my kids. Um, and uh, it, it's very natural for me to do so because that's the way that I, I, I feel loved and that's how I express love to them. But then, do I really love them when I say it from my mouth, but I'm consistently angered by inconvenience? You know, shouldn't the inconveniences in my life allow the love that I say that, that I have really to really shine within me? Shouldn't they be a product of a deeper love that I really have in my heart for my family instead of some of these surface emotions that I may experience that I just speak it, but I don't really live it? And so I struggle with hypocrisy. And I know at different levels, each of us in this room struggle with it. It's not just something for the elite, for those, for politicians or for movie stars or for, you know, people out there that it's easy to see hypocrisy on a public scene. But it's something that we all struggle with. And that's why today we're going to see that Jesus doesn't want our show. He doesn't want the outward representations of spirituality from us if it's not really coming from what's inside if it's not generated from a truly engaged heart with Jesus. Because that's where it starts. And so I'd like to jump into this passage and look closely at this event that so deeply disturbed Jesus. And um, to get us started, I want to take a look at a video clip here, guys. So if we could could roll this clip. 
This is a, uh, a clip that will maybe try to help some uh, help set a picture of what this might have looked like and what might have happened here when Jesus had this experience. <clears throat> It was almost time for the Passover festival, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. He found people selling cattle, sheep, and pigeons, and also the money changers sitting at their tables. from cords and drove all the animals out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He overturned the tables of the money changers scattered their coins. And he ordered those who sold pigeons Stop making my father's house a marketplace! His disciples remembered that the scripture says My devotion to your house, O God, burns in me like a fire. The Jewish authorities came back at him with a question. What miracle can you perform to show us that you have the right to do this? Tear down this temple, and in three days I will build it again. Are you going to build it again in three days? It has taken 46 years to build this temple. But the temple Jesus was speaking about was his body. So when he was raised from death, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and what Jesus had said. Okay. Sometimes it's helpful to visualize what we read, and so hopefully I, help, I hope that uh, maybe watching that video might have might help put us in a mindset of trying to understand what it would have been like to to witness uh, this this event. It's a very rich scene that is in many ways very difficult to try to understand what's going on here. Uh, there's a lot of different nuances that occur. 
Um, there's a lot of cultural elements and some very important prophetic elements that occur in the context of this, uh, this story. And so what I'd like to do is take some time this morning and try to understand this story from the context of how the Jews would have seen this unfold according to their worldview. You know, so often, um, and I've mentioned this other times when I've come and shared um, here and, and up at Valley, it, it seems that too often we, we read the scriptures according to our Western Christian worldview today. Meaning we, we will look and we will try to understand scriptures according to the context of where we live today. And that's understandable because we're human. I mean, we just, it's natural for us to, from our worldview and our perspective, to try to understand what it is that the scriptures are teaching or what it must have been like. And so it makes it that much more difficult and much more important for us as true students of the Bible and of the teachings and the words of Jesus to really try to dig in and understand what was this really like? What what would a Jew that was sitting or watching this unfold, what would they be seeing here that I'm not seeing? What are some of the, the nuances that are going on? Because it's in the context of these nuances and these different elements that occur that the beauty of this passage comes to life. That you can really see what Jesus is addressing here. And sometimes we can miss it when we just kind of look at it from our, you know, 2008 perspective, uh, living as, you know, Western United States Christians, you could say. It, it makes it a little bit more interesting and unique to try to understand it from the context of the day that it was written. And that's ultimately how the scripture should be understood in the first place. Let's take a look at verse 13 of this passage. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is an incredibly significant verse to set this whole story up. So somebody, I'm going to want to engage with you here a little bit this morning. Help, help me out here. Help us all out here. What was this Jewish celebration, this Jewish Passover that was occurring? Anybody want to take a stab? Just kind of speak out. What was, what was this about? What was, what was going on here at this time of year? Okay, so it was a celebration of Israel's freedom from, from Egyptian bondage. Good. Any, any other idea? What was maybe more um, specific on this celebration? What did they actually do? Does anybody have an idea what they did at this, at this time of celebration where they're celebrating this, this incredible event that occurred? Okay, yeah, there was a strong focus on worship. Animal sacrifices. Okay, good. Any, anything else? Say that again. Yes, very good, very good. There's a pilgrimage. This was one of these annual feasts that a, that a Jewish individual had to, to be a part of. I mean, it was just a mandate. If you look in Leviticus, I mean, there were certain feasts and times of the year where, where Jewish families, Jewish males in particular, were told that they had to go to Jerusalem and with their families to celebrate these special occasions. And this is one of those feasts where, where in, in particular, all Jewish men were required to celebrate this in Jerusalem. They were required to go to Jerusalem for this special event in remembrance of, like you said, of the great Passover that occurred in Exodus. And we're just going to, we're going to touch on that in a moment. It was, the Passover celebration was held on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish year. Um, which really of the Jewish calendar, which really shows its significance as being a starting event of celebration and a starting festival to set the year off in the right way. It was a very, very important event to set the scope and the tone for the entire year. And it was really an interesting event. I looked at some of the commentaries to look at some of the stuff that actually occurred. 
It was a very, you know, Ben mentioned over here, you know, animal sacrifice. It was very, it was a very bloody occurrence that we would feel very uncomfortable being a part of because we don't really understand animal sacrifice and all of that. But in the time of Jesus, you know, uh, people would line up in the temple courts and they would slaughter these animals and they would pass the blood down hand to hand in these rows of people and they would pass the blood down from person to person and then the last person would throw the blood onto the altar, splatter it onto the altar. And while they're doing this, they're singing Psalms 119 to 118. Kind of in this chant unison, this, this aspect of worship of God. So it wasn't necessarily a, you know, um, it almost sounds maybe to us in our context, it seems like a satanic type of ritual. Okay, because we don't really understand animal sacrifice. But it was really an act of worship to God that would make us feel queasy probably and uncomfortable today. But it was an, it was an act of worship to God where they were doing something very tangible with their hands and they were actually physically remembering this important event that occurred um, uh, roughly about 1,500 years earlier uh, when the uh, Israelites were freed from Egypt. And so let's take a look at this uh, uh, this morning to understand this Jewish Passover, this important festival that they're now celebrating, that they're about to celebrate here, has its roots in a very significant event in the history of the nation of Israel. And, and for some of you here, this probably is, you, you're probably very well acquainted with this event, and there are others that are here that, that probably, maybe this is the first time you've heard of this story of the Passover or this, this event of, of being released from bondage in Egypt. But basically, just to kind of set a picture for this, um, back in Exodus 12, we find the story of the original Passover, second book of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures, of the Torah. And basically what had happened previous to Exodus 12 when they celebrate this event is that the Israelites um, had relocated to Egypt and uh, because of a terrible famine in the land. And we won't go into all the story behind it, but Joseph, an Israelite, was actually down in Egypt. He had, he had retained this important public place, this important authoritarian position in Egypt. And so he allows his family and the other, other Israelites to come down into Egypt, and they provide safety for them and uh, provide food for, for the Israelites that because of this massive famine. Well, over time, Pharaoh's change, the, the kings, the rulers of, of the Egyptian empire change, and, uh, and eventually a pharaoh comes into power that didn't really remember the events of the past and how Joseph and, and, and bringing them down in the midst of the famine. And eventually what had happened is that the, it had evolved into an enslavement. The Israelites had been enslaved and in captivity to the Egyptians. And um, they were being oppressed and treated unfairly. And so uh, in this context, God raises up Moses, this man Moses, to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt's oppression and slavery. Uh, but Pharaoh won't let Israel go. And why should he? I mean, think about it here. Here's a very powerful empire that has, you know, a ton, millions of, of, of enslaved peoples that are helpful for the economy of Egypt, that are providing all the slave labor that nobody else wants to do. Of course he's not going to want them to go. But yet God raises up Moses and said, go and approach Pharaoh and tell him that you want um, to allow him to release the Israelites. And so Pharaoh says, no, of course not. This isn't going to happen. And so in order to force Pharaoh's hand, God, uh, through Moses, afflicts the Egyptians with a variety of different plagues. You may have heard of the ten plagues. 
there, I'm not going to go through all of them, but there's a lot of random things that occur, things like um, massive amounts of frogs and gnats and flies infesting everything everywhere. Uh, things like all of the livestock in the land just dropping dead and dying, which has a massive effect on the, account, on the economy with food production and everything. Uh, things like festering boils breaking out on people everywhere, just massive untamable sores, um, hail destroying the entire land and crops, um, it just really, really bad, worst nightmare type of things. Like if you could think in our country today, what are some of the most horrible things that could occur? This was in the context of that day and age, these sort of things were happening to them. But Pharaoh still has this hardness of heart and won't let the Israelites go, which leads to this final plague which is the plague on the, first, on the firstborn, otherwise known as the Passover. Basically, God said through Moses to Pharaoh that he would strike down the firstborn child of every Egyptian family, but that God would spare the firstborn of Israel. And so he gave, God through Moses gave Israelites the, instru- the Israelites instructions that each family should take a lamb and slaughter it. And spread its blood, the blood of the lamb, over the doorposts of their houses there in Egypt. And then that later that evening they would eat that, eat that lamb as a meal, as a Passover meal. And uh, Exodus 12 verses 12 and 13 says this, On that same night, I will pass, this is God speaking here, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men um, and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And he goes on to tell them that this is something that they will essentially do as a celebration and remembrance every year from now on out. You will always remember this occurrence in this day. So sure enough, the Passover occurs. The firstborn of Egypt are killed and the firstborn of Israel are saved. And Pharaoh eventually lets the Israelites go. He says, enough. I'm done with you. Get out of my country. Leave. Only to change his mind a few moments later and to chase after them. And you know, many of you know the story of, of, of Moses parting the Red Sea and Israelites going through and Pharaoh's rushing after them to try to bring them back to captivity and they get swallowed up in the sea as they get in the middle and, and, and the waves start crashing back over them and eliminate Pharaoh's army. So, interesting story. Um, definitely not the G-rated version. I mean, there's a lot of pretty amazing, uh, uncomfortable things that occur in the context of these people being released from slavery. But it's in this, in the context of this important religious holiday that is it now at hand that this event occurs. That Jesus is now going up to Jerusalem, as is required by all Jewish males, to go to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover. This is a sacred, holy holiday that was supposed to set the tone for the entire year. Being at the beginning of the year, as we mentioned, the first day of the, the 14th day of the first month. It was a holiday remembering God's provision. A holiday remembering His care. A God who rescues from calamity. A God who keeps His promises. A God who shows His supremeness as God over all the other false gods. A God who should be honored, a God who took Israel from the worst possible scenario that they could imagine and completely delivers them and allows them to triumph. An event that should pierce every Israelite to their heart, that they will forever be indebted to God for what he has done, 
but always be in constant appreciation and, 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 and remembrance for the beauty of what just occurred on the behalf of, it wasn't a great day for the Egyptians, obviously, but on behalf of the Israelites. And so let's continue reading. This is the, the context of this beautiful holiday, this great sacred remembrance that is now upon us. And this is what Jesus walks into. Verse 14. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting, sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Jesus, visibly upset, very angry. People are selling animals and exchanging money in the temple courts. And this is these are animals that are needed to celebrate this Passover occasion. But yet... They had missed the point here. These animals were typically sold in the marketplaces, not in the temple courts. Not in a place where the Gentiles can come so that they can make money off of the Gentiles as well. They were supposed to be done away from the temple. And yet they brought them into the temple courts. What does this show? It shows that the Passover feast had been treated and turned into a commercial marketed holiday. It had turned into a money-making opportunity for the Jewish people. People started to use the holiday for their own ends, not as a way to respect and honor and worship God for who He is and what He had done. Instead, they were focused on the outward signs of spirituality, on celebrating the Passover, getting as many people to celebrate the Passover, making a little money off of it. But their hearts were away from God. Jesus has very harsh words for the religious leaders and other places in the scriptures. If you if you have a, a Bible and you want to look at Matthew chapter 23, this is not new. I mean, Jesus in his his harshness of language towards the religious elites of the day. I mean, just Matthew 23 in its entirety is a tirade. I mean, you can read through this and it's like, my goodness, Jesus actually said these things. Just it, look along with me at a, at a few of these verses here. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, he says. But don't do what they do for because they don't practice what they preach. Just slams them. Verse 5, everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi, a respectful name for teacher. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He goes on, verse 15, says the same thing. Hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much of the son of hell as you are. Very harsh language. Verse 23, you have given a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Your heart is away from me. You have missed the point. You tithe... But your heart is not in it. You're doing outward expressions. You're a hypocrite. You're giving an appearance of godliness, an appearance of righteousness, appearance of what, what I would want. But at your heart, there is no justice. There is no mercy. There is no faithfulness. Verse 25 says, once again, woe to you, you're hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're still full of greed and self-indulgence. 
blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. In this famous verse here in verse 27, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appeal to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. I mean, Jesus just blasts them out of the water. He calls it as it is. Jesus has a righteous hatred for hypocrisy. It's pretty clear that this behavior just completely ticks Jesus off. It just, it rocks him to the core because it is so utterly not him. It is so utterly not of God. It is a complete fabrication of anything that is pure and lovely and good. It is the complete opposite. It's an appearance of something that looks right, but is completely misleading and untruthful at the core. I, I was reading through this, and I have to be honest with you. I thought, man, um, how you know we, we're hitting the fall now. It's a very exciting time of the year. Obviously, as the fall comes along, we have. I'm sure not all, any students that are here probably aren't excited about school starting. I know for parents, I know for us, we're a little excited that school's starting because the kids can start going back to school and, you know, not be getting under each other's fingernails at home. Um, and, uh, but we also have, you know, Thanksgiving and then Christmas coming up at the end of the fall season. And, and I, I got to thinking about Christmas. And, uh, of course, we're a very different nation today. We've got so many different ethnic groups and, and, and so many different religious perspectives today. Um, the, the nation has changed a lot over the past 200 years, which, which some people would be pretty critical of. I actually see it as a great opportunity now that so often the mission field is now so much more right around us as opposed to us going to other countries, although we should still do that. But it's a great opportunity uh, for us to be the, the, the hands and feet and the salt and light of Jesus in our own communities. Um, instead of maybe getting ticked off that not everybody, you know, uh, celebrates Christmas the way that Christians do or whatever. But, um, but for those of us who follow Jesus, how much has Christmas become so much of a commercial self-interest holiday today? Even in our, I mean, we know in our culture that it is. You know, I mean, that's natural in our culture because not everybody walks with God and holidays have been around forever and so people kind of use them to their own means. But for those of us that are followers of Jesus, how much, how, how would Jesus' words address us today in the way that we celebrate his birth? You know what I mean? Have, have we turned in our own families, turned Christmas into a commercialized holiday where we look at it? And I'm not saying that gifts and stuff are bad. I'm not saying that. Don't read into this. But you know what I mean? Where are our hearts really? I mean, where's our attention on Christmas morning and, and Christmas Eve? And are we completely focused on the reason why we're celebrating this as a follower of Jesus as opposed to the commercialism that's all around us? On a consistent basis, this is a maybe a, try to helps us put us in perspective of what the Jewish people here might have been experiencing—a very profound event, celebration in their history, and yet it had turned into something that was very surfacey and had lost its importance and its meaning in their hearts. Let's read on, verse 17. His disciples remember that it was written, "Zeal for your house will consume me." The Jews demanded of him, "What miraculous sign can you show?" Show us to prove your authority to do this. And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it after three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. 
This is an interesting two verses here at the end. But he would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. He knew what was at the core. He knew what was in their hearts. It's interesting here, this this last section of Scripture, because it's a section that gives us some important prophetical things to see and to look at as well. Jesus' actions in the temple. It's important to understand this. Jesus' actions in the temple were seen as messianic. When he did what he did with, with the zeal and the anger and the authority to go into that place and flip those tables and drive people out of there, it didn't just catch people's attention because he was acting in their minds like a lunatic. Okay? But they saw that as something very profound and messianic. They understood the Hebrew scriptures. They understood that events and things like this would occur when God's chosen one would come. Um, this can be seen, it, 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 when we watch the video, it may seem a little awkward. Like, why would the first thing that comes out of that guy's mouth, the, the pharisaical guy, be, be what mirac- miracle can you do to show that you have the authority to do this? Remember that line where he says that? It, it, it's not that he couldn't think of anything better to ask him. It's that these Jewish leaders understood and saw what he did to be messianic. And they said, prove to us that you have the authority to do what you just did. Because they were in tune with the Hebrew Scriptures. They understood the fact that the Messiah would have this authority and they wanted Jesus to perform a miracle to prove himself to them. And so he, they want to know for sure that they're seeing the true Messiah. And he responds about destroying the temple and that he would raise it again in three days. And they completely miss the reference. They don't understand. But it helps us understand once again a little bit more about why Jesus may have been so upset. Their actions in the temple were not only a picture of their disrespect for God the Father and forgetting about what God had done for them, but also a picture of their failure to see God in the flesh, the true temple of God, standing right in front of them. They missed it. You can see, I love the, 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 the visual image of Jesus as, they, as he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. And they, and they look at the physical building around them. And then you remember Jesus' face as he leaves? It just His face kind of goes downcast, argument stops, and he turns and walks away. There's a, there's a sadness on his face. They've complete, they're completely missing everything. There's no point to argue any longer here. Because they're, heart, they're completely hard-hearted and missing what, who it is that's standing right before them. Um, Jesus, the true temple of God. And he goes on in these last two verses to say he doesn't entrust himself to anyone because he knows what's really there. Ultimately, he knows that people were not really interested in him and his ways. They were interested in an authoritarian power figure that would rescue them, physical liberation from the Roman Empire. They were not looking for someone like Jesus. They were looking for someone who could make them feel powerful and important again. Someone who uh, could do things for them that they wanted. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their motivations were not with him and not with God the Father. They were focused on the externals, not the internals. And so where does that bring us this morning as we close this up? We, here we have this exciting event and holiday that we're reading about that's intended to start the right year, the year off on the right foot for the Jewish people. First, 14th day of the month of the first month of the Jewish year. With people's attention and focus being directed towards God, their Redeemer. Worshipping Him, praising Him for who He is. And what we have is an event that's turned into a formality. We have an event that is focused on self and making money in this context instead of God. 
We go back to the main point I mentioned at the, at the beginning of this morning's message. The main point of the message this morning. Jesus desperately wants our words, actions, and hearts to be completely focused on Him in unity. That is what, once again, what's in our hearts is what comes out of our mouths. That what we say is lived out in our actions on a day-to-day basis. And when people look at our actions, they can trace it back to really what's true about us in our hearts. That it's not done for some show, but that people see that's the real deal. That's a genuine article. That's, there's something about that individual's heart and their character that motivates them to do what they're doing. That we don't go through the motions in our faith and our relationship with Jesus, but that we honor Him. That we remember what He's done for us and we live differently because of it. And so as we close this morning, I want to ask you, where, where are you disunified? Where are your heart, words, and actions not in unity? Where's the place that Jesus would come to you and He would say hypocrisy? This doesn't match. Let's start with the heart. For some of us, maybe here, the core of who you are. Who is really there occupying and controlling your heart? The core of who you are. Is it Jesus or is it something else? Be honest. Be honest. Is it other things right now? Is it pursuit of money, position, your own pleasures and self-interests? This isn't a matter of saying I've never maybe confessed Jesus to wants you to, to, to live and to rule and, and reign in my life. I mean, that's obviously a starting point, but for many of us that have made that commitment, that decision, so easily and quickly our hearts get moved away to other interests. And Jesus loses that first place position in our hearts. Our hearts are disunified. They're focused on the externals and our own needs instead of Him. Do you need this morning to start at the heart? Do you need to give your heart back to being fully controlled and operated by Jesus? You know if that's where you are. God is showing that to some of you this morning. That I Just give me your heart. Everything else will flow into place if you give me your heart. Recommit that to me. Refocus that to me. Re-energize. Or give, me, give me your heart back. Maybe for some of us here, Jesus has your heart completely, but for you it's the words. At the core, yes. At the core, yes, I, I, I do want to follow Jesus. I, I, I've made that decision to give him my heart. But, but you and I, we don't always look for ways to talk about him with other people. We don't always speak encouraging or uplifting words to people we come in contact with. That the love and the, and the compassion of Jesus that's, that's really in here doesn't really make it to here. We don't really speak it. We don't really share it with other people. And it doesn't mean we just go, you know, you know, tackle some guy on the street or something and like force feed him the gospel. That, that's missing the point, I think. It, it, it means that, that people's exposure to us when we speak, it, 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 it's, it's beautiful. It's seasoned. It's, it's something that, that people know that they've interacted with or, or, or talked with someone who cares for them. There's a sense of compassion and love and mystery that's there. And so maybe that's where you need to focus this morning. Maybe you need to intentionally open your mouth more. And let the love of Jesus flow through your speech. Look for opportunities to speak words of encouragement and kindness to people around you. Instead of maybe, which is so natural for me, and I'm sure for many of us here, to complain or to be critical. Or to only talk and share the things with people that we don't like. As opposed to uplifting and sharing um, the positive. 
Or finally, maybe for you, it's the actions. You, and, and I think for many of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, many for many of us, this is where we so often, I think, uh, land. We, we know all the right things. You know, in the age of enlightenment that we've been through here, man, we have scoured this book back and forth. We've written commentaries on it. There's systematic theologies all over the place about it. I mean, we have, we, we have so much head knowledge, our, our, our heads have ballooned, you know, to just massive proportions. We know so much material. But what are we doing with what we know? It kind of goes back to what we're speaking. If all this stuff is in our head, is it making its way to our hands and our feet? Are we doing something with it? Is it, is, is it making an impact? Head knowledge without action is pointless. It's not truth. I mean, James addresses this. Faith without actions and deeds is dead. The two go hand in hand. It's, it's a beautiful picture of God's intentionality that what's in our hearts, what's in our heads, flows out of us at every pore of our, of our body. That it comes through and it shines through. And so do you need to put your faith into action? Do you need to self-sacrificially look for ways to serve those around you in unconditional love? Or maybe for some of us, your actions right now are completely contrary to the actions of Jesus. Maybe you need to take two steps here. You need to stop doing the things that your actions are about that are not in line with Jesus at all and then make another 180 degree turn and start actually moving in actions that are productive and of the Spirit of Jesus living in you that He would motivate you to do. Instead of meeting our own needs, instead focus on the needs of others. And so I don't know where each of you stand this morning. I know for me, all three of those areas hit me. All three of them. And so maybe as you write on your notes here, you know, heart, speech, and actions. And look at those three. Where are they unified? Where are they disunified? And let that be before you this week as you think through your week and as you think through the time that you're with people. And give Jesus the permission, the Holy Spirit permission within you to live through you to the lives of people. We know that we can't completely control things. You know what I mean? Like Some things are out of our control, obviously. And even our own acts of righteousness or doing the right thing so often is misleading. We are need to be empowered by God's Spirit to work and to move and to breathe through us. And so we just need to give Him permission to do that. And so whatever these areas are, you may know, you may have a neighbor right now that pops into your mind, a neighbor that you have, that you know, that you haven't talked with in a while. And you just need to go knock on the door and, how's it going? How, how you doing? You want to, I don't know, do you want to go play golf next weekend? Or you want to go grab a cup of coffee? Or, you know, go out and help the guy mow his lawn? Or I don't know, you know, be aware of the prompting of God's Spirit within you to engage and interact with the people around you. Let's pray. Uh, uh, Band can come on back up. Jesus, thank you so much for this message this morning. Um, I'm so thankful that that I serve a God who who gets angry at hypocrisy. That just doesn't, you know, pat it on the back and excuse it but expects more. I thank, you for, I thank you for that. I ask that you would, uh, your Holy Spirit would, would continue to motivate us and encourage us um, to obey you. 
in the ways that we are being disunified. Would you help us to give our hearts back to you? Would you help our words and our actions to model what's inside? We don't want to be hypocrites. We want to represent you well, so would you please help us do that? In Jesus' name.